This rock reminds me of a time in my childhood when we would go visit my grandparents, my dad's side of the family. It's actually his grandparents, so that would be my great-grandparents. They lived in Virginia near Damascus and uh, just walked kind of down the hill from their house, and there was a creek, a stream, some sort of body of water with all sorts of rocks similar to this, and we, that's where I learned, maybe you did too, to skip rocks. Anybody else do that? I mean, that's kind of a kid thing, right? I guess we could do it down here in the Keys because uh, the, the water's a little calm. It's not like, uh, you know, wave action. It's hard to do it on that, but that was it. My brother and I would go down there, and that was the challenge. Dad was the champion, I guess, because he grew up there. He had a lots of practice skipping those rocks. Uh, he tried to teach us how to do it, you know, to, to throw it just right and, and all that sort of thing. But it kind of takes me back when, when, I, when I saw this rock, when I, I got this one out of the bucket. I don't know what it's like to come in every week to church if you've been here over these last several weeks and think that the first thing you're going to do is pick up a rock. And what are you going to do with it? And where in the world... Is the preacher finding all these things about rocks in the Bible? Well, there's a lot of them. And today, we're going to talk particularly about an episode where throwing of rocks almost happened. Almost, I say, almost. John chapter 8 is where we'll spend most of our time today. Um, John chapter 8 is one of those stories that that is kind of striking, an encounter that Jesus had, as was often the case, where he came into conflict with the religious leaders. And in this particular instance, the conflict, uh, well, almost had very dire consequences. Um, In John chapter 8, we read the account, beginning in verse 2. It says, At dawn he, meaning Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach, it, teach them. Now, that's not unusual, nothing remarkable there. That was his habit. That was his pattern. Jesus would often go to these places and teach. What is a little unusual is what happens next. Verse 3, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, this must have been an exciting day to go to church. Could you imagine, as you're there in the, in the courts listening to this teacher and the commotion that would have happened. I don't know how many people who gathered around Jesus. He often attracted crowds. It wouldn't be unusual to see quite a few. And probably like most of these things, the, the noise started at the back of the crowd, that something was happening, uh, that, that there was activity, there was something of note, and that murmur that sort of creeps forward along large crowds until in the front of all of these people were the religious leaders with the kind of person they didn't often associate with. It says very particularly, she was caught in the act of adultery. So let's just say this was a rather uncomfortable moment for her. Is that fair? She probably didn't have a chance to get properly clothed. She was probably dragged out. Now, one thing that a lot of people mention, it's worth mentioning, 
You've heard the phrase, it takes two to tango. Where's her dance partner? I don't know. We'll just leave that alone. But interestingly enough, there is certainly enough going on here to get the people's attention. I, I, I think about this, this encounter, and the, the first thing that strikes me is how, what's the word I would use, how meaningless this woman is treated. She's maybe set up, we don't know. She's certainly been humiliated, dragged in front of these people. And for the religious leaders, they don't seem to give any care at all about her. In fact, as, as we read there, they asked Jesus about how the law says we should treat such women. In our culture, there might be other names given in that instance for such women. And she bore the full brunt of the humiliation in front of Jesus, in front of the crowd that had gathered to hear him, in front of those religious leaders. And yet, to the ones who were charged with leading the people, the ones who were entrusted with the law and its proper interpretation and application, the ones who represented God before the nation of Israel, who entered and offered the sacrifices, who did all of the things that set Israel right with God, they saw in this opportunity not someone desperately in need of God's grace and forgiveness, but instead an opportunity to trip Jesus up. And it is interesting to me that that's where she finds herself. These religious leaders are quite remarkable. It says a couple of categories of them, in fact, in this. It says the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, literally, I, I, I learned this. I thought this was fascinating. The Pharisees literally means those who separated themselves. And they were... Well, they were religious, that's for sure. They were the ones who thought that it was their duty to be the most religious of anybody possible. They wanted to keep every bit of the commandments as detailed as possible, and they wanted you to know it. They lived their lives in a way that they wanted to be looked up to and admired as people who got it right. They didn't want to associate, in fact, in most of their lives with the common folk, with the, the sinners of the world, to the point that some of them would physically put on blinders so they wouldn't have to see all the people around them. And actually, they earned the nickname the Bleeding Pharisees because the blinders made them run into things. I can relate. <laughs> For the record, that's not what was happening, but nonetheless the bleeding Pharisees. This is how much they valued their standing as they saw it with God. Jesus wasn't a big fan. Have you noticed that? If you've read a lot of the New Testament, read a lot of the Gospels, of all the people that Jesus came into contact with, it was usually the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders that he came in the most direct 
conflict with. Because not only did you have the Pharisees who made sure they kept the law, you had the the scribes, the other side of that. They were like the, the lawyers of the law. And what they did, they spent a lot of their time taking the law of the Old Testament and interpreting it very particularly in ways that allowed the Pharisees to live above reproach. Let me give you an example. For instance, you know you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, right? That's kind of a general thing. But in different writings uh, in, in Israel, there were particular things attached to that. What is work? And one of the things that is work is carrying something. So you're not allowed to carry something because that constitutes work. But the scribes knew that sometimes the Pharisees had to carry something, so they had to find a way out. And so they wrote about that law, this instruction, you're not supposed to carry something, that it wasn't that you weren't supposed to carry something, it's that you weren't supposed to carry something in the normal way, like in your hand or on your shoulders. However, if you carried something on your ear or elbow or on the top of your hand or in the fold of your garment or in your sandal, that wasn't work. That didn't break the law. Aren't you relieved? So if you carried your Bible, you have to take it out on your ear. And then you're, you're, you're legit. But this is their role. They kind of work together. And, and they, they did these things very particularly to try to elevate themselves above the common folk, the regular ones, the yous and me's that just live life and sometimes got up on the Sabbath and we just needed to carry something. And so they came into conflict with Jesus quite often. And in fact, at one point, Jesus gets so disgusted with them that he just lets them have it. In fact, it, it happens in the, in the context of he's invited to dinner at one of the Pharisees' houses. This is in Luke chapter 11. Um, and he's invited to dinner, and can you believe he doesn't wash his hands? Scandal, I know, doesn't wash his hands. And the Pharisee gets a little put out and puts him on the spot about it. Jesus, come on, you're supposed to wash your hands. Now, you would think when we say wash your hands, that's what we do, right? You, before you eat, you're supposed to wash your hands. It's a normal thing. It's something maybe you do. I certainly try to remember to do that. But for them, it wasn't necessarily about the particular of a sanitary requirement it was an elaborate ritual that they did as part of their pre-meal thing to as much of what the pharisees did put the focus on how faithful they were to god and his law and so in this moment jesus had had enough and in luke chapter 11 he sort of lets him have it i'm going to read a it's a I guess you'd say a paraphrase of that encounter I found in reading. I thought it was pretty good. Jesus says, You Pharisees are all alike. You take great care in washing the outside for appearance sake, but meanwhile the inside remains filthy. And then he lists several woes. Woe to you Pharisees! You give 10% of everything, wheat, barley, mint, everything, but you fail to love God and you fail to treat people with justice. Shame on you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you always take the very best seats in the synagogue, the very front row. No offense. I figured I was safe. Nobody ever sits in the front row. Anyway, and you sit there, not so you can see better, but so that you can be seen. I should have skipped that part. Moving on. And woe to you, Pharisees. 
For you tell people that if they touch a gravestone, even by accident, they accident, they will be unclean. But yet you Pharisees are walking gravestones. Your faith is dead, and you don't even know it. And then another at the dinner, a scribe, speaks up and says, Teacher, when you speak to the Pharisees like this, you hurt our feelings too. To which Jesus says, Well, woe to you too! Woe to you, scribes! You make rules for others to follow. Then you invent ways for yourselves to escape them. I just read you a way that they do that, or, or told you a way that they do that. Woe to you, scribes, because the only prophets you like are dead prophets. When the living prophets came to you, you turned them away. Woe to you, scribes, for you made the Scriptures a book of riddles that only confuse and confound the people. Shame on you. Matthew 23 has that similar account, too. These moments in time where Jesus had an interaction with these religious leaders and he called them out on their hypocrisy. Now, before we go any further, let me just make a quick point so that we don't gloss over it. It's easy in, in this context, particularly as we think about what happens at the end of this story in John chapter 8 with the woman who's kind of dragged out and humiliated, to, to get the wrong message. And here's the message I don't want you to get, that sin is no big deal. Because, in fact, the opposite is true. Sin is a huge deal. And the reason God gave the law was to outline the way we should live. And Scripture later tells us one of the purposes of the law is it shows us how poor we are at living in the ways that God wants us to. Sin is a big deal. This law that was given that the Pharisees tried so hard to keep was important, but they had robbed it of its importance by making it something that was a spectacle. In fact, Scripture tells us sin is such a big deal that in Romans chapter 1, it says it darkens our hearts. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, it says it corrupts our minds. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says sin blinds us to the truth. In Romans chapter 8, sin makes us hostile to God. In John chapter 3, it says it causes us to love darkness. In John chapter 8, here we, we see a little bit later that it causes us to be enslaved. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, it causes us to, to be disconnected in, to God and ultimately to others. In Romans chapter 5, it makes us enemies of God. And in Romans 6.23, it says the wages of sin is death. Sin is a big deal. And these Pharisees on that count, we might could say, are right to look out for sin, to try to guard themselves to keep away from sin. But Jesus calls out the hypocrisy of an outside that's nice and an inside that's not so. This rock, I, I love it because it's smooth. The first two weeks, we kind of had some rough rocks. But I, I like the smoothness of this. Over time, you know, the rough edges, I guess, have been worn away. And, and, and you know, they make some really nice rocks, some of you ladies are wearing them, I bet. Am I right? Or am I right? Yeah, nice rocks. And they're wonderful. And they have beauty to them. But you know, the interesting thing is this rock, it wouldn't take much to expose it. Well, it might take more than I have. I don't have a hammer or anything. But if I were to break it open, suddenly that nice smoothness goes away. And the jagged interior is exposed. And God, through His Son Jesus, often looked beyond the, the exterior and saw the heart. 
And that's what I think happens in John chapter 8. After these, these religious leaders have humiliated this woman, brought her in front of all these people, and, and challenged Jesus on what he would do. Notice what it says Jesus did. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, this is a pretty fascinating point in the story. It's one that's full of speculation. What in the world did he write? We'll get to that in a minute. But here's the thing I think is interesting. If you were in that crowd, or if something like that happened today, in the middle of this service, somebody was dragged in here, and there was a a confrontation at the front of the room, all eyes would be on that person, right? And I would guess if you've ever been in a situation where you were absolutely mortified and you felt like every eye was focused on you, you would do anything to hide, wouldn't you? You know the one eye in those temple courts that wasn't on that woman? It was Jesus. Rather than gawk, he gave her, we might say, the first little sign, the first little sliver of dignity by bending down and focusing on the ground. The only one so far in that whole place who's managed to see this individual as a human being, to see past the spectacle of the moment and recognize her woundedness. You know, we kind of say when we get to heaven, there's questions we'll ask, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to ask this question. Jesus, what in the world did you write on the ground? What was it? Just lots of people have speculated lots of things. Um, I don't know. Maybe he just doodled. Maybe he wrote nothing of significance. Maybe he just, in deference to the woman, gave her a little bit of space when nobody else would. But maybe it was a more pointed bit of writing. Some have said He began to write even the sins of the people that were gathered around. And maybe the reason people think that is because of what happens next in the text. Because after Jesus bends down and starts to write on the ground with his finger, verse 7 says, They kept on questioning him, and he straightened up and said to them, If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, He stooped down and wrote on the ground. Maybe that would be pretty condemning to be gathered around this woman, these religious leaders that had pressed to the front. Maybe in writing on the ground, they peeked over, and that's exactly what they saw, their name by their sin. He could have done that, right? No problem. Jesus knew what was in those people, just like he knows what's in me. Whether he did that or not, I don't know, but the way he answered their accusation is truly remarkable. Because John starts his gospel by telling us, in Jesus the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, and truth. And maybe we see a hint in that response 
of how those two mix together. If any of you is without sin, cast the first stone. He didn't deny the law. He didn't somehow make it out to be as they hoped he would, something that you could ignore and forget about. No, he held to the validity of the law by recognizing the punishment prescribed in the law for just this such a thing is stoning. But he mixed that truth of the law of God with his great grace, reminding them and us that all of us stand guilty. You know, I got to be honest, I have a little Pharisee in me. I'm guessing most of you do too. We don't like to think about it that way, but it's there. It rears its ugly head from time to time. In fact, in different books that have been written over the last five years, one of the things that people looking at Christians most often say about us is that we are some of the most judgmental people and some of the most hypocritical people on the face of the earth. You know, sometimes that's true. I said before, even recently, I see sin really well in somebody else's life. Like it, it's capital letters, bold face type, red ink, whatever. I say, oh, that's, that's bad. Ooh, do you see them? And when I look in the mirror, it's hard to see there. It's really, really, really hard to see there. And the minute I start to get a glimpse of it, I think, oh, it's not that bad. Or some other rationalization. We do it. One of the things that, that's remarkable as well about Jesus is he came, Scripture tells us, not to abolish the law, but to complete it or to fulfill it. And you know, I see in this encounter the same thing. Have you noticed that when Jesus would come into conflict with people, particularly those who were religious, he sort of upped the ante on the law. There were times when, when he came, and it's like, if you want to look in the mirror and say, look how amazing I am, look how godly I am, look how righteous I am, Jesus wants you to know whatever standard you've set is not the final standard. I can't be that bad. I've never killed anybody. To which Jesus would say, if you've called them a fool or hated them, you've as good as murdered them. Yeah, but I, I've never done what this woman did. I've never had an affair. To which Jesus would say, if you've ever looked at someone lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. It's like he understood that that in us was this 
thing that made us want to see ourselves in the best possible light. And sometimes the only way we can do that is to make the other people around us look worse. And when that pharisaical tendency crops up, I think Jesus wants to remind me, nope. What you think you know of the law, you haven't got there yet. Scripture goes on in John chapter 8 and says it this. Those who heard began to go away one at a time. And this is the little detail that I love. The older went first and then the younger until only Jesus was left and the woman still standing there. Those must have been excruciating moments for her. How did that look? I don't know. I would imagine because they were intending to stone her, they probably had some stones with them. Maybe as they brought her before the crowd, the people in the audience, the people surrounding them thought, oh, here's our chance. We've got to do this. You know, in Israel, they say it was about once every six or so years that somebody would actually be stoned. That penalty that the law had sort of was a deterrent of sorts. It didn't happen all the time, and I'm sure it was quite the event when it did. Maybe some of them tried to pick up stones or got ready for this moment. It wasn't going to happen in the temple. They'd have to take her outside. But nonetheless, we've got to be ready. And I wonder if as she stood there, numb to what's going on, probably not certain, not, not even hearing what Jesus said, just alone in her shame, if the first time somebody dropped the stone and she heard it thud, she sh- winced, braced herself for the impact. Time and again, I don't know if she ever looked up. I don't know if she ever noticed the crowd was thinning. But at some point, it's just her and Jesus. And Jesus straightened up and asked her. For the first time, I would imagine looking at her, seeing her. And what does he say? Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Now, let's make a contrast here. The religious leaders said, what do we do with that kind of woman? And Jesus says, woman now i know that maybe in our culture that would be a bit of a disrespectful term if one of you came up to me after service i said look woman that would not go well i would go home with two black eyes potentially (laughs) but if you go back you know who jesus scripture records often called woman his mom at the wedding Cain of Galilee she comes to him because they're out of wine and he says woman and maybe even more tenderly on the cross as he looks down at her and John 
he says to Mary, woman, this is your son. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Then neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. I think I need that reminder. I think from time to time, even if I want to read an account like that and and say, no, I would have been an advocate. I wouldn't have let that happen. I wouldn't have felt the way the crowd did. It doesn't take long to recognize that same thing in me. Maybe I, I don't carry a physical stone around waiting to wing it at somebody who breaks God's law. But the verbal ones, oh, they can come fast, huh? You remember the old kids thing, right? Sticks and stones may break my bones. But words will never harm me. Anyone ever been hurt by what somebody said? So it's a lie. Words are very powerful. Can be very painful. And in this moment, Jesus identifies not only the hypocrisy of those religious leaders and even those in the crowd that are there, but that in my own heart. And here's what I love. When I recognize that, and when I go to him and, I, and say, God, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I see my own hypocrisy. I see my own pharisaical tendencies. Please forgive me. He does. And maybe in those moments, I drop my stone and find the forgiveness that he offers. You know, for the last several weeks, I've given you the stone and I've given you an opportunity to get rid of it if you wanted it. And I've said repeatedly, don't do it because the preacher told you to. Well, today is the opposite. Today is do it because the preacher told you to. I mean, I can't make you. You're all grown-ups pretty much. But it's a little different emphasis today. Because when you came in, you saw the table with the elements of the Lord's Supper. And here's what I want to invite you to do. To drop your stone at the altar as a symbolic way to admit you know, sometimes I'm a little bit more like the Pharisees than I should be. And find at this same altar these elements that are symbolic of the way that Jesus has absolved me of that very guilt by his broken body and his shed blood symbolized here on the table. So today that's kind of the way we're going to do communion. 
We're not going to pass it to you. We're going to invite you to come forward. And in doing that, maybe lay down your stones, just like they did that day when they came into contact with the man full of grace and truth.